we really appreciate you uh, patiently waiting. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, we are still continuing our fundraiser here for Seek Healing. Uh, and in fact, we have one of our um, one of our board members here. She's actually the director of science here with Seek Healing, and she has given a TED talk and has explored academia like like few and far between, I believe, with her neuroscience. And she's a neuroethicist. Um, she has uh, certainly helped with creating Seek Healing's approach to addiction. Uh, through the uh, the science of human connection. Uh, her name is Dr. Rachel Wersman. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay, Joey, everyone? Yes. All right, great. So thank you for that introduction. Um, as, um, as was said, I am um, the Director of Science for Seek Healing. And actually, if you guys could give me just a moment, my computer just told me that it's all happy with um, huh, the temperature of my computer. So I'm just going to see if I can rearrange this without losing my green screen so that it doesn't overheat. All right, let's hope this works. Okay. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so I'm the director of science for Seek Healing. Um, and uh, I'm sure you guys have heard many times what we're doing here. Um, Seek Healing's mission is to prevent overdoses by addressing the root causes of addiction. And we have all been experiencing one really, really massive trauma that is so relevant to the root causes of addiction, um, which is this, this forced social isolation and social disconnection that we've all been experiencing during this COVID crisis. I mean, at Seek Healing, we're empowering healing from addiction um, for sustainable improvement in the life experiences of people who are suffering from significant trauma. And we're doing this by creating spaces of authentic human connection that are devoid of shame and judgment that are available at all stages in the addiction healing process. Um, so I just wanna welcome everybody to the space where, um, where hopefully we can process a little bit of some of what we've been through and think about some of the science that's been happening um, you know, that's behind what's been happening in our brains and maybe some of the things that we've seen and experienced. So what I wanna do in the next 45 minutes um, is to talk a little bit about why, um, why our brains have created such an experience of discomfort in the last few months. All right, so the, the preview to that is that systems that make connecting deeply with other human beings a rewarding experience are the same systems in the brain that process all rewards. So um, including the rewards from addictive drugs. So these systems are connected to circuits in your brain that give you the emotional part of the experience of physical pain. And this is why opioid painkillers are so effective at squelching physical and emotional pain in addition to being highly pleasurable. And when we can't connect to other human beings, you know, as, as, as biological creatures, we, we evolve to feel uncomfortable because solitude is not supposed to be safe for us. We need each other to function and we need more, as it turns out, than just this instrumental support. We need more than just helping each other find food and shelter and, and the things that we usually think about. It turns out in order to really balance a whole bunch of different brain circuits in the brain, we need to have meaningful social interaction. And feeling a lack of 
connection or a lack of belonging specifically hurts because of the involvement of the brain's naturally produced opioids uh, involvement in signaling with these pathways. Um, so absent human connection and community belonging to calm that painful inner alarm bell that we experience when we feel really just alone, our brains motivate us to, to bond to something else that can bring our screaming neurochemical uh, signaling back into balance. So with that, I wanna pose a couple questions um, to all of you. Um, how have you felt being prevented from accessing your relationships in the way that you've been accustomed? What little or not so little pleasures or indulgences have you picked up to make this experience a little bit easier for you? Have you been stress baking, maybe? Have you been excessively um, indulging in porn, maybe? Has your drinking or drug use increased in volume or frequency? Do you find yourself a little bit more compulsive than usual? Do you have any new habits? Have you returned to any compulsive behaviors that had been less maybe in the past or become more obsessive about something in particular? Um, for instance, you know, are, are issues with food avoidance or binging becoming more apparent in people who've been diagnosed with eating disorders, things like that. Um, I'm gonna be talking in this talk about the science of social connection and addiction. I'm really gonna try to keep the jargon down, um, but I'm really hoping to make this talk personal too. So um, after I go through some of the science, I'm really just gonna share a little bit about what my experience um, has been during this time. And, um, and maybe some of you guys can relate to it too. And, and I'll present the science first so that we can sort of see why things have happened, you know, the way that they've happened. So um, really what we wanna do is we wanna understand how loneliness affects the brain. And to do that, we have to just understand a little bit about how brains function. And so the first thing to note is that every brain is different. So not everybody is gonna experience identical brain activation to the same circumstances. Um, everybody is just tuned a little bit differently. There's an adage in neuroscience that just says, if you've seen one brain, you've seen one brain. So how many of you have heard things about the brain like the empathy part of the brain? right, or the attention part of the brain, um, or the um, addiction part of the brain. Uh, so, so that's a little bit misleading, and here's why. So to call a particular part of the brain and say that that's where X happens or that's where Y happens um, is misleading because all brain areas are actually connected to each other. So there are these local circuits in brain areas and those are processing information in specialized ways that are related to that particular area of the brain. So you're going to have local circuits that process certain types of information. Um, for instance, maybe information about social stimuli, maybe information about visual stimuli, maybe um, emotional information, maybe attention uh, that, that's determining what catches the attention. So the little local circuits sort of determine what function a particular part of the brain is involved in. But then there's these networks and these brain areas are all connected by these different networks. And it's these networks that are responsible 
for some of these higher level functions that we usually think about when we're saying, you know, addiction. So really I want to talk about circuits and networks. Um, and to, to understand how addiction or social connection or loneliness affects the brain, it's, it's just really important to understand that we're talking about networks because these networks often share brain, brain um, areas. So you'll have, for instance, um, areas that are involved in um, processing uh, physical pain and emotional pain, okay? So those, um, those different sorts of experiences activate this part of the brain in common, um, which is the part of the brain that is what makes pain feel bad, right? So pain doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to feel bad. Have you ever been in pain and just thought, yeah, it hurts, but I don't really care? Or maybe you've taken a drug that's been like, yeah, technically I can feel the pain, but it, you know, it's not really bothering me. I'm just kind of, you know, things like ketamine will sometimes do that to people. Um, dissociative, actually a little bit Tylenol actually um, decreases what, what we're calling, it's called the effective component of pain. So it's the part of the pain that has the emotional response. So have you ever felt pain that just makes you filled with rage, like sudden immediate rage? I once had a partner the only time, the only time I have ever done anything, I, I can't believe I'm, I'm going to admit this, but in the spirit of Sue Keeling, here we're going to go. The only time I have ever um, done anything like hit a partner was um, I had a partner that came up behind me and surprised me and did something that was painful. And there was just this feeling of rage and I turned around and I smacked him um, because it hurt. Um, and that that's just sort of an example of how emotional parts of the brain can really, and, and motivational parts of the brain and automated behaviors can really get activated um, by, by pain. Um, there's other kinds of pain, right? There's, there's kinds of pain, I don't, okay, so I'm never really sure when I uh, use examples like this, if this is just me or if this is other people. So I'm, I'm banking on the fact that this is other people too. But um, there are certain forms of pain that hurt but there's a part of it that doesn't actually feel bad. It feels kind of good. Like there's certain forms of oral pain, not a root canal, not that pain, that's excruciating pain, but like, um, you know, blisters, things that sting a little bit. Um, sometimes there's a, there's a component of it that doesn't feel quite as painful. Anyway, all my point is, is that the degree to which the emotional pain processing centers are activated is really gonna determine um, whether pain is tolerable or pain is intolerable. And so these emotional processing areas in the brain, this effective component of pain, what these brain areas that process this kind of thing do is they are um, linking our emotional systems with motivational networks. So motivational networks involve things like attention um, and they, uh, they input into parts of the brain that disinhibit behavior. So in order to get motivated to do something, you have to have um, sort of an emotional component that pushes you to do something. And then depending on what kind of behavior it is, it's gonna go into a part of the brain that just releases behaviors, oftentimes automatic behaviors. And this part of the brain, um, if you've seen my TED talk, you've heard me talk about it, it's called the ventral striatum. So the things that process the um, effective components of pain and that process emotional motivation of behavior in general, so when something catches your attention and you're, you feel emotionally motivated to do something about that thing, it's gonna activate this part of the brain in, the, in what's called the ventral striatum, but, or sometimes it's called the nucleus accumbens. 
and it's going to cause a cascade in this one circuit that's involved in voluntary and involuntary behavior. So um, the part of the brain that's receiving the input from this pain processing and emotional motivation processing um, is really, really involved in the development of habits. And as you can imagine, it's also important in the development of addiction. And one of the ways that it's really involved in that, it's, is that it is that place. I'm sure most people on the street have generally heard that dopamine getting released has something to do with addiction. And this is the part of the brain that explains that. So dopamine is released in this particular part of the brain. And that is what makes um, behaviors become associated with rewarding feelings, with feelings of pleasure. So um, with certain addictive drugs, you're going to get a direct hit to the brain. You're going to get, ooh, that feels really, really good. Excuse me just a minute. I'm going to turn on Do Not Disturb. My apologies. Um, so opioids and uh, many addictive drugs directly activate this part of the brain. Um, but other sorts of behaviors also activate this part of the brain. So if you're with me now, we've got these circuits and they share these emotional parts in common, these motivational parts in common, and they project into the part of the brain that's involved with voluntary or involuntary behaviors and um, the kind of brain processing of rewards that leads to addiction. So let's bring oxytocin into the picture. So um, if you guys can see this, but I am wearing my oxytocin necklace because I'm a big, big nerd. And oxytocin signaling, you might've heard somewhere else is involved in those warm, fuzzy feelings. So um, oxytocin is this hormone in the brain that really cements people into a feeling of belonging. So it'll define sort of in-group, out-group um, sorts of dynamics. It's involved in that and it is released when say a mother is holding um, an infant or when two humans are interacting and they're hugging, right? So there's this chest, chest, it's called ventral, ventral uh, contact and that causes oxytocin to be released. Um, it's involved in increasing trust between people, but interestingly only people that are already perceived to be safe for you in your group. Um, it can actually function in different ways, but that's, that's to digress a little bit. So um, oxytocin signaling, happens in a number of different places. And one of them is in this one midbrain area. So we're, we're talking more primitive brain, brainstem kind of area. And um, there is an area in the midbrain that um, oxytocin signals in. And what it does is it increases um, the activity of these dopamine releasing neurons. So those dopamine releasing neurons are projecting up to those motivation integrating and habit parts of the brain. So when we have pro-social behavior, and pro-social behavior is, um, I'm gonna just define it as, as behavior that promotes safe connection with others. When, when we are engaging in pro-social behavior or experiencing it with others, um, it activates these dopamine releasing neurons and they cause this release in the part of the brain that's in your reward circuit that makes social connection feel good. And so the sensitivity of this reward system is, is getting tuned by how much dopamine is being released to it. And oxytocin, which is related to our social connection, is part of that part of what is tuning its sensitivity. So the sensitivity of the reward part of the brain is, um, 
is, is affected by a couple different things. So first is how much of this oxytocin and dopamine signaling is occurring on a regular basis. Second is opioid signaling within these emotional motivation networks um, and these pain processing circuits in the brain, as well as directly in what we're calling the ventral striatum, right? In the ventral striatum, that's the reward part of the brain. So we have some oxytocin um, tuning of it, and we also have these brains naturally producing opioids that, um, that are projected to the reward center by parts of the brain that are all involved in a lot of different aspects of um, social connection, things like where your attention is drawn to. So um, in social circumstances, what you're thinking about during social circumstances. And I'm gonna get there in a second, but one thing I just wanna say here is it's not just interacting with other people. We have its tendency um, as neuroscientists to think about loneliness and social connection in this really, really one-dimensional way. And this one-dimensional way um, basically considers how many people are we interacting with and are we, say, in some sort of social association with them. And we call that, or, or, or the science sometimes calls that communities. But here's the thing. If you've ever been a member of um, a church or another religious group and felt like you don't belong there, felt like maybe you're an imposter, felt like these people are being fake, they don't really like me, or they're judging me, that's not going to produce the same kind of brain activation as if you're in a community of people where you're feeling like, and of course this can happen in religious communities, I definitely don't want to suggest otherwise, but not all of them, right? So um, it's not going to be the same activation as when people are interacting and feeling safe and feeling like they're seen um, and accepted um, and being heard and that they're hearing other people. It's just a very different internal experience. But loneliness, um, so loneliness has this not just component of either being socially isolated and not interacting with other people, but it can also happen when people have interactions with other people that increase their feelings of not belonging or if they're interacting with other people and feeling like an outsider or feeling like um, an experience of shame in some ways. And so we really have to be thinking about these different dimensions and the brain gives us some really cool hints as to why, um, why we're experiencing these things differently depending on who we are, depending on how our particular circuits have been tuned and, and things that are, are going to set those sort of set points for us is gonna be things like our lifetime experience of trauma, you know, how much trauma we've experienced, um, including in social situations, but also um, the kinds of stress that we might have experienced. So what the consequences of this are is when this sort of subjective experience of loneliness happens, or we're not getting enough rewarding social interaction, what happens is that our reward systems get hypersensitive because of the way that this dopamine and this oxytocin and these opioids are projecting into this addiction um, network, this network that's involved in addiction and voluntary behavior and social reward, right? So if you're not getting enough connection, what happens is the example I like to use is it's like being, um, when you're really, really hungry, like if you're if you're if you're hikers and you've just you know been backpacking for a couple of days, um, 
or you know, you, you go a couple meals without eating, maybe you're fasting for some reason or another, that first meal that you have is going to taste amazing, amazing. I remember the first time that I had um, food, you know, it was like that, the, that dehydrated, rehydrated food that you get and you um, eat on, on trails. And it was amazing when I ate it on the trail. And so I had some in my cabinet and I went and I ate some when it wasn't um, you know, when I had eaten lunch, you know, it was just like, okay, what am I going to have for dinner? Oh, this is fast. All I need is boiling water for this. Good. I need to go to the grocery store anyway. I made it. It was kind of gross. It was like, it was actually kind of gross. So this thing that, that, you know, was just sort of like, eh, was just amazing on the brain. It was amazing. I'm sorry, amazing on the trail because I was really hungry. And sort of the same thing is going to happen when we have these reward circuits that are tuned to be hypersensitized by not having enough social connection when they actually experience something that's just a little bit rewarding, like the reaction is just off the charts. It's super sensitive. And because there's actually direct opioid signaling in this part of the brain that really kind of tunes the dopamine activity, drugs like opioids are just heat-seeking freaking missiles for this part of the brain. As as responsive as anyone is gonna to be to an addictive drug in conditions of loneliness and isolation, we're setting ourselves to be even more sensitive to it. And it's not just gonna be addictive drugs in this case. Like um, I bet a lot of people have been experiencing some really, really, really delicious brownies or cakes. I, I just, I keep hearing about the stress baking thing and, um, and I think that um, not only is it, is it a function of time, but I think that there's possibly even a response to things like sugar, ice cream, yeah, ice cream for sure, right? Um, that's just even better. Like ice cream tastes better when you're lonely, rejected, and isolated. Why else do we go to chocolate ice cream when we're dumped, right? When we're going through a breakup when we're depressed about something. Ice cream is just exactly what solves that problem for us. It's exactly what, what mediates the pain and it's even more rewarding sometimes when we're feeling um, you know, not, not centered. Um, it is, it's comforting. So um, so there are differences in how lonely brains are operating, lonely brains operate. So, Loneliness operates, interestingly, in the brain by shaping what people expect and what they think about other people. All right, so there was this experiment um, that uh, Dr. Cacioppo did in 2008, and his group showed lonely and non-lonely people pictures of humans or pictures of just inanimate objects as a control. So they found that when the human depiction, you know, when the pictures of the people were, were pleasant, you know, maybe it was you're, you're observing, a, you know, someone smiling or rewarding social interaction that you, that you can infer, lonely individuals actually had less activity in those reward circuits than they did when they were looking at inanimate objects, all right? So when you're lonely, not only are you, um, not only are, is your reward system hypersensitized to rewarding things, but it's a little bit less responsive to social cues. And 
only if the depictions of people, uh, of, the, of the people in the pictures were unpleasant, did the brains show a stronger response than they did to inanimate objects. So the visual parts of the brain were actually activated in that case, which was suggesting that the attention of lonely people is being drawn towards, um, towards the distress of the human's picture. But what was interesting as much as anything was what wasn't activated under those conditions in the lonely people compared to the non-lonely people. So when the non-lonely people saw pictures of people in distress, first of all, the non-lonely people had greater activation in the reward circuits in the brain, whether when they were viewing people compared to objects, no matter if the people were doing something that looked pleasant or doing something that looked, you know, painful. But when they were viewing unpleasant circumstances uh, in these pictures, it wasn't just that that their attention was being drawn, there was activity in the parts of the brain um, that uh, um, are involved in circuits that suggest that these people were actively reflecting on the distress of the people. So, um, so we're actually seeing some evidence of empathic processing when, um, when they're viewing uh, when non-lonely people are viewing these pictures, but lonely people, there's a little bit less empathy, right? There's that, I think, really, really reflects that when we feel connected, we process connection differently. And, um, and it really, really highlights the fact that, you know, under conditions of chronic loneliness, we start to respond to our environment in all sorts of different ways. So, um, so another really interesting thing about, about these social brains that we have is that when we experience social exclusion, that painful emotional reaction is actually processed in the brain similarly to physical pain. So social pain and mentalizing also have something to do with each other, right? So not only um, is there that effective you know, think social exclusion hurts and we feel it in the same parts of the brain that process the emotional components of physical pain. And um, what is really interesting is actually that there is a connection between um, loneliness and chronic pain in individuals. So that's another, that's another interesting thing. Have people, has people had experiences where they're, if they have chronic pain, has their chronic pain increased during this isolation period? But some of the, some of the circumstances for people with chronic pain, um, things that tend to come along with that are things like depression, things like, um, that isolate us, um, and disconnect us from other people, oftentimes because we can't participate, oftentimes because we're distracted by the pain when we are trying to participate, things like that. Right, and so what I'm really just trying to illustrate here is that these emotions and these, these experiences of physical pain and social pain are all sort of activating these common areas that are involved in all these different circuits. And one of those circuits is um, connected to a network that is responsible for thinking about other people's thoughts and motives. All right, so check this, right? When you experience social exclusion, there's an increase in activity in what other people are thinking. So I don't know if anybody here, especially those, you hear this all the time, you know, um, amongst people who have experienced um, chronic bonding to a substance where um, they're in a social situation and we're just thinking, 
all right, they're, 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 they're thinking something bad about me. They're, they're thinking I don't belong here. You know, we're, we become preoccupied with what other people are thinking, right? This is, and, and we're not the only ones. In general, social anxiety, what are the things that we experience when we're experiencing social anxiety? Usually, we're having some thoughts about what other people are thinking or being, and usually they're negative in, in reference to ourselves. Um, and so we're actually primed by these networks to have a certain kind of thought when we're lonely and we're around other people. Um, so shame is something that's really, really important to consider here. So when we experience shame, we are experiencing disconnection, right? We are feeling in a painful way that we are not acceptable, that we are not okay. And these interactions that we're in are, are going to be painful, that there is something wrong with us. And what tends to come along with that are these negative thoughts about what other people are thinking about us, which make us even less able and feel less safe and even less able to connect with other people. But under conditions where we don't get to interact with each other that much, we're going to have changes in the tuning of these systems so that we're going to be a little bit more vulnerable to shame. We're going to be a little bit more vulnerable to trauma. And in fact, it is actually traumatic for the brain to not experience rewarding social connection on a regular basis. And so the consequences of social exclusion and loneliness is that you have this social pain that sensitizes, hypersensitizes the reward system. You get brains that are gonna be really responsive to opioids and you get brains that are gonna be really sensitive to all reward um, system activating behavior. So we got a lot of mentalizing, a little bit increase in mentalizing, thinking about what other people are thinking about, generally about us. Um, and we're feeling this emotional part of this pain. And all of this is having input into the part of our brain that controls our habits and our automatic behaviors. And it's causing us to become more easily bonded to things. And I'm using that word bonded really deliberately. I'll go back and forth between addiction and bonding. But one of the things we really like to, to say in Seek Healing is it's really important that we normalize this experience of addiction, because it is. Because this is a process that is going to occur in every single brain. And look what's happening on a societal basis right now. So after, after this period of social isolation, things that are emotionally intolerable are, are gonna be even more emotionally intolerable. We're gonna actually experience motivation in response to an emotional state to actually take action in ways that we might not have otherwise. And I think that social experiences are gonna be particularly motivating. So hopefully I've explained this in a way that you can follow it. But I think that, um, for instance, the social isolation that we've experienced has probably made our brains more attentive to the distress of others, right? When we're lonely, that study showed that when we're lonely, we're more attentive to the distress of others. 
and we're more motivated. We have a stronger emotional response, like we have to do something. And thank goodness for that, because it's about time that we did start responding um, to the injustices and the inequities. And this may be actually um, one of those um, blessings of COVID where we are so much more sensitized to the trauma of others and so much more emotionally reactive because of this condition of loneliness that we're actually in a position where we can start to have difficult discussions and start to take social pain. But, but, that is only gonna occur if we're seeking this bonding to others and not, and not bonding to um, the other things that activate our reward system. So um, what are some of the things that we were seeing during the, I mean, we're, we're still seeing them, right? So I, I'm the director of science, I have a PhD in neuroscience. And um, when I came on board with Seek Healing, I got really um, excited about um, kind of some of what I was doing here. So I went back and I'm getting a social work degree um, and a therapy license. So in my internship, um, I've been, um, you know, a tra I'm training to be a therapist and we have seen, and this has been documented in data, a tremendous increase in suicidality. Um, any therapists or people in the recovery world um, on the line, there's just been um, thinking about suicide. Um, it's just been, the crisis that's come about has been pretty intense. Um, there have been um, increases in overdoses. And I'm sure that there are several reasons for this. Um, part of it is that people have been returning to use. People are in pain. You know, when, when, we're, when we're in physical pain, we're going to do something to alleviate our physical pain. And maybe that's just pinching ourselves somewhere else. And maybe that's taking a Tylenol or a stronger medication. And when we're in emotional pain, we reflexively do something to make that pain less. And it's not always the same thing. You know, we think, we think, okay, emotional pain, well, maybe people who are bonded to substances might turn to, to the substances, but we also do other things. Um, sometimes we do things that um, make us feel a sense of control. Sometimes we start fights with people. Sometimes we, um, we have other behaviors that, um, that are intended to distract us from, from what we're going through. Um, so along with this increase in, in these behaviors that are intended to minimize this discomfort, we are seeing a lot of increased return to use. It's just, it's just been a lot of, um, a lot of that. And a lot of people who have really, really just been struggling and suffering and people who are overdosing. And, um, it may be that people are uh, afraid to go to the doctor right now or afraid to, um, you know, uh, there, there's been an overwhelming of the healthcare system and the emergency response system. And so a lot more suicides are being completed, um, but people are dying. These deaths of despair that we talk about have really, really kicked up. So, um, you know, I'm not exempted as, as a member of this community, as a member of, of every community, I, I'm not exempted from, from this experience. Um, my primary bonding, for instance, um, has, been to, has been to food. Um, so I am um, I'm somebody who, who has a history of bonding to sugar. Um, 
And it's not so obvious. It's not like I was thinking, you know, in the beginning of the situation, oh, I'm under a lot of stress. Oh, I'm so lonely. I think I'll go eat sugar. That's, that's not how it happened in my brain. You know, I had been without sugar, like hardcore forms of sugar, because I'm telling you, like, it, it, I, I am an alcoholic with sugar. Um, it had been years. And I found myself engaging in that bonding behavior. And when I put it down, it was so much harder to leave it down than it was before. Um, so I know, I, I was having this experience, I was recognizing what it was. And of course, when it comes to bonding to substances or otherwise, you know, understanding what it is doesn't necessarily, um, understanding what's happening does not usually translate into, you know, one's ability to do anything about it. Um, and I did actually get back into my own recovery over the last couple months. Um, but there is something I am really convinced to be said for the fact that I went from this lifestyle where I was seeing people in the community on a regular basis. I was connecting um, in service with other people. Um, I'm just, in general, I'm an extrovert. And I noticed that... Uh, that the first week was really hard for everybody. And then the introverts actually, I think, had an easier time adjusting um, after sort of the initial thing and the extroverts really had a hard time. Um, um, sorry, I'm also looking at some of the connections. Um, and yeah, so, so Seek Healing has been amazing. I don't know what I would have done without Seek Healing. So I actually went out West, got stuck in Colorado because I... Um, I went to California and then I was supposed to be in Colorado for four days and then I was going to drive back, um, get a car out there and drive back and then isolation happened. So I wound up staying there for a couple months. So I'm, I'm away from Asheville. I'm away from, from the community. And um, the one real saving grace is Seek Healing has had these um, connection sessions over Zoom. We pivoted to being digital in about a week. And I noticed something really interesting, um, which is that... And, and as a scientist, I'm interested in this because the Zoom connections sometimes felt so rewarding and felt so much like they really did go a long way towards bridging the gap between um, how I was how I was feeling, you know, getting to connect with humans in person and there. And then sometimes it seemed that I would go to these Zoom meetings um, and I would feel more conscious of my separation from others and more conscious of my isolation from others. And when I reflect back on what connected, you know, what the trend was in those experiences, I noticed that I was more likely to have those experiences where it's sort of like, uh, somebody said it like the, um, an increased conscious, increased consciousness of your absence from it, something like that. But I felt that increased consciousness of absence when I was in, in Zoom, um, or the presence of your absence, I think that's what it was, when I was in Zoom, more when I was using my drug. And so my drug was, on the one hand, you know, alleviating some discomfort. And I found myself going from zero to 60 with it really fast, really, really, really shocked me. And while I was engaging in that behavior, I seemed less able to bond um, 
with other people in the community that I was interacting with on Zoom. So all of this comes to say that I kept coming back. I kept coming to these these connection sessions, you know, and um, and this really brings brings me to, to what can we do about this? Really, like what what have I learned? What have we learned? What would the science say about what we can do about these conditions that are increasing our um, our addictive drives so much right now. And one of the things is, is, is that it's really important to connect with other people, even when you don't feel like showing up and connecting with other people. But it's also really important that you have a safe environment to do so. So not all Zoom rooms are equal, not all social contexts are equal. There is a way to show up and places where you can show up where it feels okay to be not okay and where it doesn't feel okay to be not okay and we need to be able to show up and feel not okay and let ourselves be seen feeling not okay if we're not doing that if we're not able to actually name that wherever we're showing up for whatever reason you know maybe the other person just would find it depressing or it's just not built into the container or um, or any number of reasons, then we might actually have this experience where we feel more lonely in the presence of others than we did by ourselves. So one of the things that's really important that we address at Seek Healing is, is this critical non-judgment, complete non-judgment. Um, we take it for granted that every single one of us, every single one of us has something that we are bonded to when we feel uncomfortable. It may be Netflix, it may be our cell phones, it may be game playing, it may be stress baking, it may be sugar binging, it may be heroin, it may be alcohol, it may be methamphetamines, it may be porn watching, it may be, you name it. Something's making us feel better. Um, heck, it may even be gossiping. There's something that we're doing that's making us feel better. And we're gonna do those things more. But when we're doing those things more, um, we have to, we, we can't necessarily stop doing those things in order to come and, and connect again. Sort of what, sometimes what we have to do is we just have to show up in social situations, being bonded to something else and have that be okay and be able to just name that. Because what, what then happens is, um, when there's not that judgment, when this experience can be normalized, where we can really, truly equate painkiller abuse to um, stress baking and really not judge that as any different, um, what happens is that people start feeling like we're all speaking each other's experience, that we've all had this experience. We start feeling connected. Um, in our experience of what we might call brokenness, what is really much more accurately called humanness, right? Um, we are experiencing the very essence of the human condition. And the human condition has this feed forward cycle between feeling shame and disconnection and feeling shame and disconnection. That is why shaming was used for social control in communities. That's, that's why it's used for social control in communities. The most destructive thing you can do is to shut somebody out. But the experience of saying, hey, I see you, I hear you, I feel you, um, and not needing to be perfect, not needing to be right, that starts to break through that armor. It gives us this common experience. Um, 
and um, and that common experience is actually activating our reward system. We're having an increase in, we're having a decrease in the amount that we're thinking about what other people are thinking about us or what they might be thinking about. And we're having more reflection on what might be going on with them, right? It's a real subtle difference. I'm thinking about what you're going through versus I'm thinking about what you're thinking about me. Right? This is the difference that social connection. Oh, workaholism. Thank you so much um, for the person who brought up workaholism. Work is one of the main things we do to anesthetize ourselves in this culture. And there are some that are so rewarded, right? There are some bondings that are just so much more rewarded um, socially than others. But at the end of the day, it's intolerable to just sit there alone. So we do something about that. So we can come together, we can be imperfect. And when we get to experience that, our brains start desensitizing our reward system. So I think that's what happened with me. One of the reasons why I was able to get back into recovery was I was showing up in environments where I could be not okay, where I could be exactly where I was and name it and actually not feel shame and not make a big deal out of it either. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm doing this thing again. Oops, damn, you know, and it's frustrating, but it, it, I felt totally okay to admit that. And then to have a week where I was better. And then a week where I was like, nope, doing it again. Um, and over time, I think that desensitized my reward system a little bit, made it a little easier for that behavior that I had um, a bonding to, uh, to lessen and to increase my ability to bond with all of you guys in this brilliantly amazing community and other communities that I'm a part of. So we don't just need to be interacting with other people. We need to be interacting vulnerably. We need to be being seen and we need to be safe being seen. And one of the things that I found, especially when I was experiencing um, that thing where I would get on Zoom and just feel even lonelier, or I'd get on Zoom and I would just feel angry that I couldn't be with these people. And that would be a huge part of my experience was um, there's a secret sauce to doing this when you feel that way. And one of the things that I kind of discovered was that service, um, you know, we've known in the recovery world that service is huge for um, recovery, but we had projects with Seek Healing. Um, we had Operation COVID Connect. And so um, maybe somebody else has talked about what Operation COVID Connect was, but this was the first thing that really, really started bringing me out of it. I could participate in this thing with other people to help other people. And we had these emotional first aid baskets that we put together. Um, and we had two different versions. One of them were for, um, for people who were in uh, involuntary withdrawal because they couldn't access um, the substance that they were bonded to. Um, to sort of alleviate that. And the other one was really just for people who were experiencing um, the stress and anxiety. And so we had a lot of herbal supplements and it was just meant to be just an expression of love. You know, it was something that I got to come together with other members of this community and engage together with something that the intention was to show love to others. And that seemed to be a really important um, peace. When I was working on that with others, I didn't feel the distance so much. Even with Zoom, I didn't feel the different, the, 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 um, the distance. So there's something about coming together in service that is profoundly rewarding. 
just absolutely profoundly rewarding. And there's every, from all the science that I've talked about today, there's every reason to understand why that is probably the case. So, um, so we can come together, we can be in service to others. We can be in service to others by creating safe places where people can just be. We can practice non-judgment and believe me, it is a practice. It is not humanly possible to have non-judgment. That is just not a thing that humans can do because our brains are discriminating organs. That's what they do. But we can name it. You know, we can look at ourselves. We can say, wow, I'm a broken human. I'm an imperfect human and I have the human condition and you have the human condition and boy, are we human. Damn, are we human. You know, and that to me, um, that sort of unconditional love for that humanness is something that I've learned and um, something that I am learning and something that I get a chance to enact through Seek Healing and with Seek Healing and in my work here. Um, so, um, yeah. Thank you so much. That's hmm. said. I'm, I'm struck right now so much by the, not just the, um, how accessible uh, you're making some of these concepts from a neuroscience perspective through your own experience and just really struck right now by the specifically um, vulnerability and talking about your own experience and how that is a, the underpinning of the content um, that you're <laughs> suggesting to us. And I, I know I'm reading the chat here and noticing that it's really impacting a lot of others in the same way. Um, with a few minutes left, I wanted to ask if anybody had any specific questions to ask before we wrap up. I'm noticing uh, just a lot of people, it sounds like, move to tears at different points during this presentation. Um, a lot of resonance. Um, I think Elena has her hand raised. Elena, how do I unmute? Oh, it seemed that way. Maybe oh, it's not it was me. an accident if it was, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you though, I'm loving listening to you. Yeah, um, <laughs> anything. Let's see what we have here. These videos will be recorded, Lynn. Um, we're recording now, so we'll make the uh, links to the Zoom videos available probably tomorrow. Um, we'll make that available to everybody over the newsletter. Allison, I love your quote. Hey, uh, Rachel, I huh? do have a question from a, to, to know from, a, you know, you're a scientist, so from a scientific understanding mm -hmm. that far, far deeper and more pinpointed than mine, but has a similar life experience in, in the seek healing sense. Um, a lot of times I see that in life, in work, in society, uh, it's almost commanded that our image be as perfect as possible while we fall apart internally. Mm. Um, and I always feel like seek healing helps us look at the perfect image being our imperfect growing self. And I'm wondering what scientifically, and this might be a question that's longer than you can answer, maybe now that I think about it for the time we have, but what is the, the brain function that makes society want that perfection image and allow for others to not? Mm. I, I, maybe it's too complicated of a question right now, and I'm happy to uh, maybe send you an email for an answer, but it's, it's a big curiosity of mine from all this conversation. Thank you for your question. Yeah, that's, that's a really important, interesting question. And actually, I'm aware of a book that's being written by Gabor Mate right now that essentially is, is asking about just that thing, you know, how does our culture influence 
um, these conditions. But I think what it comes down to is, if I understand your question, it was, what is it about was it what is it about society that that makes us feel I like guess, we have to conform, or what is it about that experience that contributes? More like what is it about our about people's brain that demand perfection when perfection is imperfect? Imperfect. So I think that the answer to that is has to do with what shame does to the brain. So the way that shame. Um, affects our brain's ability to process information. People who have shame um, judge themselves and are also more likely to judge other people. So when you have a culture that um, is, is, is shame-based, when a lot of the social norms are enforced through shame, um, what we have are brains that are also preferentially processing information to think about what other people are thinking or doing to form certain kinds of, um, to, to be favoring certain kinds of negative cognitions. And of course, when we're judging others, that's also creating this separation between us. So it sort of feeds on itself where when we feel judged or when we feel like we are judgeable in a negative sense, we also judge others. And our cognitions are going to tend to be thinking, what are other people thinking of me more? And then we're also judging them as a response to that. And we're not getting, and, and all of that sort of acts through these circuits to increase an experience of social pain um, and sensitize our reward systems, which in turn make us more likely to be bonding to something that makes us feel a little bit better than each other. So it's just this sort of like, I, I, hope, I hope that was clear. Um, but it creates this dynamic. And so when you, when you have shame, you're gonna increase brain conditions that are favorable to judgment and the experience of social inclusion, exclusion and things like that. And then that causes us to do things that separate us from other people too. I think that's absolutely, yeah. It seemed like it answered the question to me. Um, thank you, William, for the question. Um, and thank you, Rachel, for such a, a thorough and vulnerable um, explanation of uh, these complicated issues. I'm noticing also someone just sharing some other resources in the chat. Um, we're just about wrapping up with our time here. Um, and I want to say thank you again, Rachel, Dr. Wurzman, Seek Healing's Director of Science, um, for this time. Uh, thank you. I'm seeing just like a lot of physical resonance, a lot of nodding and heart holding. and. Um, uh, really grateful for your words here this afternoon. I'd like to remind everybody that again, this is a, a modern telephone and fundraiser for Seek Healing, which is actively providing the types of experiences that Rachel's been talking about this whole time um, in our local program in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, with the intention of um, bringing it to other places as we continue to grow. Um, so if you do feel moved, please uh, feel free to reach out and make a donation. You can text Seek Healing to 44321. Uh, or click the donate button on the event page. There's also a really cool auction going on. If you haven't checked that out yet, there's some amazing items available for bid, including original art prints and um, tattoo sessions here locally in Asheville. So check those out if you haven't had a chance yet. And coming up next is um, another keynote presentation from Sarah Ness, um, who's a, an expert in some of these um, ways of creating authentic containers that Rachel has been talking about here, um, creating spaces where we can feel uh, and really experience what our brains need to feel connected. She's doing a keynote followed by a workshop uh, where you'll actually get into pairs and practice relating and connecting with other people. 
So thank you so much. And thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much.